Our saying of Jesus this morning is, I am the bread of life. So I'd like to read a portion of the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And only a portion, because this is the longest chapter. Of course, chapters are, I should add, artificial divisions that were introduced later, but thank, we're thankful for them because we can find our way around. But this chapter is uh, the longest, not only in the Gospel of John, but in the New Testament. So, although I'd like to read it all to you, all 71 verses, uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to deal with what's happening from beginning to end of the chapter, at least in part, but I just want to read to you from verse 25 to 36. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That would be loaves of bread. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They, had, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have sent me, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Moses said that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I would really encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 8 from beginning to end. It's uh, 20 verses. But it is there 
that Moses challenges the people to rely on God, to depend on him, to trust on him. In effect, to say the spiritual life is more important than the material life. You don't live on bread alone. You live in dependence upon our God. Jesus quoted that very verse, those very words of Moses when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights, he communed with God, the Father. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, at the end, and this is very important, it was then that the tempter came to him. And he asked Jesus, who was, we're told, famished, and he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Satisfy your own hunger. You've got the power. You are the Son of God, aren't you? It would be a simple thing. Just Say the word, and you will have it. Turn these stones around you into loaves of bread. That saying, uh, of course, when Jesus says it, it's certainly appropriate. He's a man. But when Moses says it, and Jesus quotes him word for word, it is humankind, humankind. Humanity shall not live by bread alone. In other words, there's no one on God's green earth who doesn't need more in life than just bread. Bread alone, that is a staple, that which sustains our physical life is not enough for life indeed. What's interesting to me is... um, Satan says, uh, if you are the Son of God, where did Jesus get that idea? Don't misunderstand me. I realize that Jesus is preexistent, but Jesus is born of Mary. It is a unique, one-of-a-kind birth. We call it the incarnation. The Holy Spirit overshadows her. And the birth is what we call, or the later church councils, theological councils that debated this sort of thing in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, uh, very God, very man. Very God, very man. 
You can't divide them. It's not two substances in one person. But it's very important that Jesus is very man, very human. It's important for us. I mean, why did Jesus come? Why did the Father send him? Well, certainly it involved his ministry and his death, but it also involved what we call condescension, coming down to our level, identifying with us, uh, unifying in a way with us. We'll hear a little bit more about that, but the most important point I want us to appreciate is that before Jesus goes into the wilderness and communes with the Father for 40 days and 40 nights without food, just before that, he was baptized. And at his baptism, like a dove, like a dove, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. And the heavens were opened, and Jesus heard a voice, the voice of the Father. Do you know what he said? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is very important because if Jesus just walks above the earth and is not like you and me, those words aren't that important. It's more for us than for him. But that's not the testimony of the early church. It's not the testimony of Scripture. Jesus is fully human, and those words matter. That is what launches his messiahship, his ministry. And he begins the beginning of his ministry by communing with the Father in this isolation where he spends time with him. And it is at the end of that time when he is famished, the evil one. Notice the timing. Notice the sequence. Notice the question. If you are the Son of God, well, would that even be a temptation if Jesus isn't fully human? But he combats that temptation with the word of God, with the thing that was spoken to him. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Because he comes right back at that doubt raised, if you will, or that accusation or challenge, that questioning, that reservation, if you are the Son of God. And he says, quoting the word, it is written, no human shall live by bread and bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Father. I think there's a connection there. I think Jesus stands on the word that he heard at his baptism. His identity is defined by the Father. Now, this is important for you and me. I think something that has grieved me over the years and increasingly 
as I age, as I mellow, is how little importance is placed upon our baptism. We would have no baptism if it weren't for the baptism of Jesus. His baptism is our baptism. We get our identity in his baptism. Paul certainly picks this up in Romans chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized have been baptized into his death? And he goes on to describe who we are in Christ. We are so identified with him, with his ministry, in his death and resurrection, that I no longer live, but he lives in me. And of course, I keep trying to crawl out of the grave And Paul understands that, too. Again and again and again, put off the old person. Put on the new person. This new humanity, this entirely new creation that you are in Jesus Christ. One for you at the cross, realized in the resurrection, experienced in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, whether you're ever or always or just once in a while aware of it. And it's all there in our baptism, which is really rooted, grounded, I should say anchored in the water of his baptism. And isn't at the heart of the entire gospel, what we call the good news, the message of the New Testament, isn't the message, you are my child, in you I am well pleased. That's especially important in our lives each and every day. If you fathom that in the depths of your heart, It changes you. We call it conversion. It becomes a reality that we accept. And it changes the way we see ourselves and the world because we see clearly him who was baptized, him who went to the cross, him who was raised from the dead. I am the bread of life. Bread alone can't satisfy the hunger of our hearts, hunger for acceptance, hunger for approval, hunger for applause, hunger for acclaim. I think this is uh, testified to or a witness to it or a proof of it or evidence of this hunger of the human heart is found in the way people have flocked to social media and how they crave the likes, the hearts, the acceptance, approval, applause, acclaim that they get there. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm not part of a well-rounded diet. I'm the meal. I'm the nourishment of life. I am life. 
eternal life even now. I'm not a side dish, not an appetizer, not an entree or a dessert. I'm the banquet for one. Feast on me. I satisfy. I'm meat and drink indeed. That is the constant theme of chapter 6. Get your nourishment in me. I'm the bread of life. Get your nourishment in me. It doesn't seem like we should need to be reminded, but we do. Jesus performs a sign in the opening first 15 verses is the feeding of the 5,000. But in verse 10, we learn that it is the 5,000 men that are asked to recline and prepare, so we know that there's many more than that because there are women and young people as well. So I don't know how large the throng was, but it was vast. And some indication of that is revealed as you read those verses by the way Philip tries to calculate what it would cost if they were to find an open market that had that kind of food available to feed such a throng. It's humanly impossible. But he's just uh, playing with his disciples, you know. He wants to tease out of them more He wants to draw out of them, uh, so to speak, a preparation for what he's going to do. And so much of our life is like that. If we're walking with him, sometimes we don't understand what's happening, what we're going through, why it takes so long. But it prepares us because we continue to walk with him. We exercise faith. We don't go away. We don't quit walking with him. We keep coming here on Sundays. I mean, if you think back, just even maybe over the last three, four, how many times have you come and you felt like you weren't prepared, and yet you were just glad you were here because God spoke to you, not only through his word, but through what we sang together, maybe your participation, maybe God used you encouraging someone else. Maybe somebody else was here just out of habit, But then they got the surprise and the delight of their life because they spent some time with you. And you brought some joy, some encouragement, some perspective. God had you here to bless them in ways that neither of you fully expected. And so, of course, uh, one of the disciples brings uh, the lunch of a child And Jesus multiplies it. He has the men sit down in groups so that they can organize the distribution. And then afterwards, they collect baskets of leftover bread. Everybody ate all the bread they wanted. That's the foundation of this chapter. In fact, in verse 14... They say, this is a sign. Well, a sign in the Gospel of John is uh, the equivalent of a miracle in Matthew, Luke, 
and Mark. But the reason John calls them signs is because he wants us to be aware in a kind of a next level sort of way that a sign points to something greater. A sign is not an indication in itself. A sign is an indication of a greater truth, a greater reality. And so in other words, we shouldn't become enamored with the sign. We have to use the sign to become enamored with what the sign wants us to see. And they say, this is a sign. They say, this is the prophet that is to come, which goes back to Deuteronomy when Moses said, God is going to send another like me. And now the people, after seeing this sign, they're looking at Jesus, they're saying, he's the one, he's the prophet to come. And Jesus realizes that they're going to kind of grab him and if they can compel him to become king in verse 15 and so he escapes alone to a mountain to spend some time with God and then in the meantime the disciples after dark get in their boats they don't know where Jesus is and when he's coming so they set off from the lower end of Galilee probably the area of Tiberias, and they go to the upper northern end of Galilee. It's about six miles across, and they're going to go to Capernaum. And during the night, a big storm kicks up, and they're in great distress, and Jesus comes walking in the water and identifies completely with them in their great hour of need. And... uh, in a divine, miraculous way, they find themselves at their destination, safe and sound. The next morning, the crowds are still following Jesus, and so they come to him there. They get in their boats because they can see that he has moved, and the other disciples are boated at the other end of the lake, and so they join him, and they say, Jesus, how did you get here? That's where we began reading. What are you doing here? And Jesus says, we've got a problem. You find me useful. You like what I provide. You like what I do for you. You like the bread of leaven, but I'm the bread of heaven. You've got to believe in me, but you come to me because of the bread of leaven and not the bread of heaven. And that's the issue of belief that's being dealt with. You want me to give you what you want, not what you need. And you know, that is the fundamental problem with a lot of contemporary American Christianity because it's something that affects us all. It is the battle of our spiritual lives day in and day out. We want Jesus to give us what we think we need, not what he knows we need. We want the bread of leaven, that is the bread that is raised and made fluffy, into loaves by a little yeast, a little leaven, as it's called. That's the bread you eat. 
but the bread of heaven. That's Jesus Christ. And we're called to eat him. And that causes the disciples to struggle. In these verses, these 71 verses, nine times Jesus says, the food that remains to eternal life, verse 27, he keeps saying to them, look, see, come to me, see me, and believe in me. And then related to that, the food that remains to eternal life, verse 27, the bread of heaven that gives life to the world, verse 33, um, I will raise up all who believe on the last day, verse 39 and 44. The one who believes in me has eternal life, verse 47. Eat the bread of heaven, eat it and not die, verse 50. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 53, and the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54. And then this in verses 55, 6, 7, and 8. My flesh is true food, and my blood is is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides, remains, abides in me, and I reside, remain, and abide in him or in her. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so the one who consumes, eats me, will live because of me. You see that there's an important pattern you really need to see there. This relationship, I'll be in you and you'll be in me. He says, that's the pattern I have with the Father. And because of that pattern, there's a pattern between you and me in our relationship when you believe in me. And then he says, it is not like the bread of your, this is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the bread of your ancestors who ate it and then later died. The one who eats this bread lives forever. And note, if you have your Bible open, I want you to look in verse 54, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood produces eternal life. You see that? It also produces the promise of the resurrection. Now in verse 56, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood leads to a relationship of mutual indwelling in me and in him. In other words, possessing eternal life and 
abiding in Jesus are equivalent. And it isn't surprising because in John's first letter, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, he who has the Son has the life. Eternal life is not a formula. It is believing in Jesus. The resurrection is not something that through a math equation solved, something we earn. That life begins when we enter into it in relationship, in faith, in Jesus Christ. I know it's graphic, and I couldn't say it. You notice my, what I call a, the big idea or the proposition of, of this chapter, um, get your nourishment in me, I'm the bread of life. Uh, but Jesus goes much, he uses figurative language to try and describe this mystery of union that is ours with him through faith in him. Uh, in chapter 15, he uses the vine and the branches. He says, you can't live unless you're it attached, if, unless you're a branch in me, growing out of me. Here, he gets so graphic, so descriptive, that in one verse he uses the polite eating, and then in the very next verse, verse 34, 33 and 34, he uses eating. What are you going to eat? But then in verse 34 he says, uh, what are you going to chew? What are you going to chew? Chew my flesh, drink my blood. And if you find that a little hard, you're not alone. In verse 60, the disciples said, this is, this is, whoa, this is too much. Let's keep it polite. Let's, let's, you know. And in verse 66, it's easy to remember chapter 6, verse 66. It says, many disciples went away and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said, Peter, he said this to the twelve, are you going to go away too? And Peter said, to, who, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Get your nourishment in me. I'm the bread of life. How do we exercise this faith? Jesus wasn't advocating the night of the living dead. But how do we exercise it? How do we find our nourishment, our sustenance, 
our satisfaction in him. When we're so geared in our life to rely upon the bread of leaven, to pursue the bread of leaven. We go to school, we go to work, we take dance, we engage in sports. Everything about life in America is the bread of leaven. I, Shelley and I, we, we got married in 1974, about 10 years later. Um, I realized that I could not find my satisfaction in Shelley. Shelley did not satisfy my life. I thought she would. Even though I was training for ministry and in the pastorate, I was for Christ. You know, a lot of us are, are we not all for Christ? Isn't that why we're here? You're here because you're for Christ. I was for Christ. But I was trying to find my satisfaction in Shelley. And it created a lot of problems because I was looking to her for fulfillment, for affection, approval, applause. Sometimes she didn't even know what I needed. And so when she couldn't meet that, then of course that put me on edge, made me feel unloved, unapproved, unaccepted. And for a guy that was as needy as I was at the time, that was, that was a huge burden to bear. I, couldn't, I wouldn't even talk about that because that's so private, you know. And then it dawned on me as I was pastoring in the bear, as I was in, in the Word, and it was just, you know what? You're trying to find in other people, in other pursuits, what you can only find in me. It's not enough to be for Jesus. You have to be in Jesus. If you're for Jesus, it'll be about Jesus. I've met a lot of people that are so about Jesus. In fact, they're like Pharisees for Jesus. They're strict keepers of the law, more so than Jesus himself. They police his people. They make sure we're all doing it just right. Because that's how you show you're for Jesus. And that's really kind of how I guess you validate your place. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in Jesus. This bread and this cup are meant to remind us of this uh, incredibly amazing relationship and the power of new life, transformed life, transformed living that comes through Jesus. And that's who we remember in this bread and this cup. In fact, it was he who said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.